Welcome to Roger's wireless voicemail. Please enter your password. Yeah, uh, Marsha, I, I just wanted to call and connect after hearing that liberal pictures option my novel. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm really chuffed by this. It's really exciting news. I, I always thought the book would make an excellent film. Actually, I, I sort of thought it would be, um, well, what do they call it, uh, like a limited series? You know, I thought six television hours based on the book's architecture, where it's six sections of six chapters each. But a feature film is great. It's just fantastic. Um, I don't know if you've got a screenwriter in mind, but I'd love to take a crack at it, if that's possible. I've uh, done some work in the theater in the past, so I'm not unfamiliar with writing for actors. And uh, I even have some ideas how we could get some of the backstory, the early years in the book, down to a couple of scenes in Rome set in the 1970s. I think we, or, or you, I think you are in a, a great position to cast the female lead where she's a character in her 50s. To me, there's an abundance of available talent out there in that age range. Um, I have some other casting ideas if you, if you want them. Um, anyway, most importantly, very, very happy that this is happening. Uh, I was wondering, do I get any of that Harold Greenberg fund money, or does that all go to the screenwriter? And I'm going to talk to my publisher about putting one of those soon-to-be-a-major-motion-picture stickers on the cover of the book. Anyway, thanks. Thanks for this. It's just, just great news. Great news. Bye. To erase this message, press 7. Message will be saved for 8 days. Who doesn't want to have their novel bought for film or television, the reach of their good work multiplied beyond imagining? This is the era of television, even more than it is of film, our binge-watching of Get Down, Homeland, The Leftovers, Top of the Lake, and, of course, Game of Thrones, providing the conversation, even if so many of these series originated, as most of the best films also do, with a book. More than a decade ago now, I sat with the late, great, Bajan-born Canadian writer Austin Clarke on the back deck of his Moss Park home in Toronto. Downstairs were shelves and shelves of books and his own unforgettable titles. When he was free and young, and he used to wear silks, several of its stories collected in Choosing His Coffin, a volume I've pushed on Friends, to be sure, but also Taxi Drivers, whom I've sometimes thought were living lives similar to the West Indian immigrants whose arrival in Toronto in the 1950s and 60s onwards Clark has chronicled better than anyone. It was my admiration for Austin's work that put this show in mind. Clark won both the Giller and Commonwealth Prizes for his novel of slavery, The Polished Ho, but his stories in his so-called Toronto Trilogy of novels, The Meeting Point, Storm of Fortune, and The Bigger Light, are, to my mind, the masterpieces of a writer who claimed everything to be political. Food, the weather, the houses we live inside. In white, stultifying, Presbyterian 1960s Toronto, the mansions of Rosedale and Forest Hill were places where his displaced West Indian brethren worked as maids and cleaners, Clark's menfolk trying to navigate banks and bosses in cold Canadian ways. I think of Clark's Toronto trilogy as a Canadian upstairs-downstairs, or Downton Abbey, his Jewish Burman family upstairs, the domestic Bernice Leach and her community down. Clark's characters are legion. Calypso is the soundtrack, and the language exuberant and rich. His is the work I'd like to see made into that instant classic Canadian television miniseries. Hell, the writer has little work to do, can pinch at will from the extraordinary short stories Clark also wrote. 
authors are forgotten soon enough, but this one needs to be remembered. And it's not like Canada's represented up there in the kingdom of unforgettable television miniseries much at all. And yet, there's a cornucopia of great Canadian stories out there. So I thought I'd see what works a few of my esteemed author and film pals might nominate. So I'm going to call my chum Marina Endicott. Marina lives out in Edmonton. She's a wonderful writer. She wrote Good to a Fault and more recently Close to Hugh. She's been nominated for a Governor General's Award. She also has a lot of experience of theatre and so I think she thinks in different media and I'm a fan. Hello. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. What is the Canadian novel that would make a fine and distinctive miniseries? You know, our TV is playing catch-up. Do you have one in mind? I do. I pondered Mavis Gallant, whose close and magnifying, you know, almost claustrophobic lens I think would work really well for television. And I thought about prairie writers like Sinclair Ross or Fred Stenson, those chroniclers of our landscape. But I couldn't help for television miniseries specifically going to a magnificent book by Caroline Adderson, who's a Vancouver writer, multi-award winning. She's been shortlisted for the Sunday Times Short Story Prize and the Impact Award and the Gigi and the Rogers and the Commonwealth Prize twice. She's won the CBC Literary Awards three times. Ellen in Pieces is her 2014 novel. I just love that book. In whole and in pieces, it's a novel composed of short stories that are all not just linked, but interwoven. Ellen herself is the centerpiece, and she's the every woman of our times, the id of us. It's a complex and beautiful book made up of bitter sadness and fury and battering of spirit, but also hilariously funny. Lots of love in it and and lots of sex, a surprising amount of sex for a Canadian book. It's a broken, kaleidoscopic novel. It's shifting and glinting and ultimately shattering. It's a novel of domestic breakdown to a point, is it not? Well, yes, except that it's also about the revolving circles of our domesticity. So the family circle from the past whirls into the present, is always there, goes into the future. It's about... The non-domestic life of women, their friendships that extend beyond the home and the several different stories, chapters, almost every single one is in a different point of view, which I think would be fascinating for a miniseries to take on. I do think of Carolyn, whom I admire enormously, as primarily a short story writer. So it sounds like she's migrated that talent to the novel very cleverly. Yes, and she published many of these pieces separately. So they do absolutely work as standalone, as a miniseries maybe ought to. But they also become greater than the sum of the parts as the accumulated knowledge of these characters, which is one of the things I love about television, where you have that length of time to get to know characters so that by the time you're watching the fourth or fifth episode, you carry a weight of understanding that helps the show to go further and spring off from that. Carolyn has, I don't want to say a dark sense of humor, but certainly a mischievous, um, (laughs) tricksterish one, I would say, especially when it comes to matters of sex. Does that hold in Ellen's relationship, well, her relationship with Larry falters and then she takes a younger lover? Yeah, 20 years younger, which is nice to see when we're used to it being the other way around. I love that relationship. And also the hidden joy of the novel is that then the next time you see them, you see it from the younger lover's point of view. So you see the same people, but you see them through different people's eyes. And I think that adds depth and variegation to the material that you don't often find. And now I'm being the uh, patriotic spoiler, but is there something to your mind that is distinctively Canadian about this? Something that speaks to ourselves 
that would make it a project that we'd undertake that, for instance, America might not? Yes, I do think so. It's so firmly set in Vancouver. And the Vancouver experience of middle-class life that is well-to-do, but also precarious and shaky in various directions, both up and down the generations and also up and down the social classes. So she is alternately in different pieces, poor and rich, successful and unsuccessful, married and happy and very middle-class, and then left, abandoned, a single mother. And I think that those shifts of class and economic status are peculiarly Canadian. We are more mobile that way than other cultures seem to be, where in England or in the States, once you're in the well-to-do class, you seem to stay there. Canadians seem to shift a little bit more on that. And I certainly agree with you that in Vancouver, there is always something slightly amiss. People ostensibly live well, but there's something askew in the foundation. Speaks to that to a point, does it? It does. And I think that it's interesting that Caroline's current project is called Vancouver Vanishes. She's become really obsessed with the teardowns of beautiful houses that are in perfectly good condition in order to make new infills. In Ellen in Pieces, the whole market instability and market bubble in Vancouver is really a troubling one, but it also fits in really well with the bubble of these lives and how they are shaky too. From Carolyn Addison's Ellen in Pieces. So, in her 48th year, Ellen took up with a man-boy in his 20s, who wore shorts in any weather. She couldn't believe her luck. At first, Matt had hours, all day in fact he was unemployed, to lie around with Ellen, who, living off her savings, was queen of her own life. Queen Ellen spread out in the loft on the hot, twisted sheets, inhaling the tang of their exertions, while Matt scampered down the ladder to do her bidding. He brought her a glass of water, a wad of tissues to wipe the melty puddle off her belly, a cheese plate from the fridge. One afternoon he fell back, curls fanning across the pillow. I need to ask you something really personal. I've never asked anyone before, and I need the honest truth, please. What? Ellen said. What? Is my cock too big? This went on for three glorious weeks that autumn, while even the weather seemed to announce the return of love. The horse chestnut trees burst into flame. The Japanese maples dripped red, burgundy, carnelian. It didn't rain. And then it did. Lashings of it, the wind tearing off the last celebratory leaves. The trees stood around, undressed and shivering, clotted with crow's nests. Now Matt brought his cell phone up to the loft and left it turned on. Ellen pretended she didn't see it tossed onto the clothes he'd so urgently shed, but there it lay, connecting him to someone he'd failed to mention. She pulled the sheet up to cover her body. Too much information. Let the suffering begin. This is no easy country to represent. Trust me that we'll try and do so over the course of these podcasts. For now, let's turn to Quebec, as their film record is the envy of just about every other province and territory. Alain Ferrat is a writer, come publisher, come professor of literature at the French Department of McGill University in Montreal. His novel, Pourquoi Boulogne, translated by the brilliant laser later handler as Ravenscrag, is a marvellous tale of fascinating uncertainty, promulgated not least by Donald Ewan Cameron's 1940s experiments with LSD and mind control that took place in McGill's hallowed halls. Right, 
Oui, allô. Salut. Hello, c'est Noah. Salut, Noah. Je suis content de t'entendre. Listen, ça va si on parle en anglais? Yeah, yeah, but I apologize for my English and all the words I'll be looking for during our conversation. That's all right. It's Canada. Sometimes the French words are better. Sometimes the English. Yeah, exactly. Listen, Ella, I wonder if you can help me. I'm doing a series of literary podcasts, and so it struck me that there are a number of extraordinary Canadian novels that have not been made into fantastic television miniseries, and that we have a wealth of great stories to tell. I always dream of taking the Westerner, Fred Stenson's novel, The Trade, and various novels set in and around the beginning of the 19th century and doing a kind of Game of Thrones of the fur trade. But that's just one example. I'm wondering if you, one of my favorite Canadian authors, author of Raven's Crag, if there's a book that comes to mind for you. Uh, what's our budget, Noah? Do we have all the money in the world? It's the 150th anniversary of Canada next year. The Canada Council is practically littering writers with cash, asking them to apply for 150 grand. Perfect. Trudeau is keen to celebrate. I think we have all the money in the world. Okay, that sounds good. You know what? I've been thinking I, something that we don't see often is some cartoons made for adults. And I was thinking that one of Régent Ducharme's least known books, we all know La Vallée des Avalées, but his fourth book is called La Fée de Christophe Colomb, so uh, Christopher Columbus' daughter. And it's such a great piece. It's like a novel, but it's written in poems. So it's short and very funny poems about the daughter of Christopher Columbus trying to build an army of animals, so many kinds of animals, you know, ants, giraffes, cats. You have uh, an army of a hundred rats. Is it a, a satire about Columbus's discovery of North America? I don't know it. No, 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 not at all. You know, most people don't know it. It was never published in paperback, so it was a flop, I think. It's a strange poetry. It rhymes a lot, and it's as if it's for children. But no, 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 it, it has nothing to do with Columbus, the, the real one. She lives in Russia. She was born from an egg, and then she hates the humankind. And she wants to find a way to destroy humankind. So it, it's Duchamp, you know, it's, it's, it's all ironic. But she builds up this army, and I was thinking that a cartoon, but with all the violence also that's in Duchamp's work, would, would be great. I don't know if you, you think that the CBC would agree with that. Well, we're not selling this to CBC. I think that Netflix <laughs> is doing it, no? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. We should go to Netflix. You're right. So in this book, there's also a, a reflection about God, you know, in, in the way that Duchamp can do it. Very ironic, I was telling you. So God is watching all of this happen, you know, all this vengeance, from this little girl toward humankind. And the funny part is that his name is not God in the book. And you know what it is? It's Al Capone. So that's pure Duchamp, you know, <laughs> it's all over the place. But that's also the way Duchamp works. This like seemingly childish tales that still confront so many things, you know, so many issues in a way adults have forgotten about their own childhood. So what is the expense in it? Just that you're going to do it as a graphic novel for television? Yeah, that's exactly the way I was thinking of it. You know, in a very Aristotelian structure, you know, with the exposition and, you know, like from the egg, then she slowly gathers her troop all those animals all over the forests and all over the world, and then finally 
this confrontation happened. But in, in the book, it's pure fantasy. It's a dream that she has. It's a way to express her misanthropy, we say in French. I don't know how to say that in English. What do you think was Ducharme's intent when he has the daughter so disaffected with humans that her relationships are entirely with animals? For me, it concerns the fact that Ducharme doesn't seem to fit you know, in, in the adult world. In all Duchamp's book, it's always children that are not able to fit in an adult world where the adults have forgotten what they were. So in previous novels, it's all about being alone and trying, you know, with, with a, either an older brother or a neighbor trying to escape in a sense. So it's a way to express that. But it's the first time in his work that we see something so spectacular. From the Daughter of Christopher Columbus by Réjean Ducharme Dear readers, remember in your prayers that I am telling you the beautiful story of Columbia Columbus, a globetrotter with glasses saying her prayers every night, pin-up too, holder of a unique pair of tits. This beautiful story, believe it or not, was lived. It was imposed on me like a past by something that I have in my head, but that I don't hear anymore by some kind of inevitable sun, black and pink. Everything that I touch, I botch. The pink, when I apply it, is mixed with gray. My black is brown like cow dung. But I'll go on until the end. I have spoken. If I were less nauseated by life, I would probably tell you this beautiful story better. When a person feels like committing suicide, my dear, the verse gets worse, and bursts as you go along. You have nine saved wireless voice messages. First saved message. Okay, okay, geez, voicemail. Um, uh, Marcia, I uh, really wanted to talk, but uh, I've been having a really hard time getting you at the office. Anyway, I, I, I totally get you wanting to go with a experienced screenwriter rather than me, but... Um, you know, the thing is, I don't see anything vaguely like my nature of Storia on Lydia's IMBD page. She's done mostly television and, you know, purportedly comedy stuff, kind of frothy stuff, and uh, all of it set in Toronto. And, and, you know, where my book deals with the Red Brigades in Italy. Anyway, I, I spoke with Lydia yesterday by phone, and I also found it a little strange that she took the job without having bothered to first read my book. Um, she told me you had decided to make all the main characters much younger, and I get that. You know the business much better than me, okay? So um, please give me a call when you have a chance. Oh, oh, and I, I also want to say I totally get you're not wanting soon or major motion picture being on the cover of my book. Okay, thanks. Bye. It's so pleasantly something to be surprised. I figured Marina would go for maybe Fred Stenson's The Trade and Alain something contemporary and political. Perhaps Louis Hamelin's novel of the 1970 October crisis, Le Constellation du Lynx, published in English as October 1970. But what do I know? 
So there's a library near San Francisco that was founded by a couple of Silicon Valley-made entrepreneurs, or at least there used to be, and it ditched the Dewey system of classification and starts from the idea of place instead. Fiction, non-fiction, poetry, science, illustrated memoir or biography, all these are subgenres that follow from the fact of a particular place giving rise to particular stories. My friend Nicholas Rose, a Montreal-born film producer, would be interested in that notion. Hello. Hi, is that Nicholas? It is. Nicholas, it's Noah Richler calling from Canada. Hi, Noah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? How's London? London is fine, but I'm in Suffolk. Just got back from Canada. I know you've been going back and forth, which is uh, really a lot of the reason I'm calling. I thought I'd ask some literally-minded pals of mine, what is the great Canadian book, it doesn't need to be a novel, it might not be, that could be made into a whoppingly fantastic film or television miniseries? Well, I think good producers don't look for books that are immediately identified by their national status. They just look for good stories. And when I go after good stories, I'm after all kinds of various elements. But I found one that is a Canadian story, written by Farley Moat. It was one of his earliest books, and it's called Gracie's Under. And it's a story about a, a, a tug and its crew off the coast of Nova Scotia between about 1930 and 1948. And the stories are incredible. And, you know, I bought the rights to the book. But the interesting thing about it is that the, the people I'm dealing with now think of this as a Canadian film. The reality is it just happens to be a great story set in Canada. Somebody was talking to me the other day about the whole series of Farley Mowat's books. And I said, that's not what interests me. It's the stories that he wrote about this particular time and place. Well, I suppose you can think of it as a story of the Atlantic, and there are many nations that border on that great ocean. Do you focus on a particular period? You know, this is the problem that we producers have and writers have. How do we make that story work across that path of time? Or do we take one or two elements out of it? I mean, the, the reality is, in this particular book, there are 32 chapters, each of them an incredibly heroic and epic story. Each one of those could be easily a, a film. And we have to figure out what we're going to do with that. Right now, what, what I'm aiming for is to do the whole history from 1930 until 1948. And a little bit like Das Boat, my grandmaster plan is to have a feature film of the whole story, but then shoot enough footage that we can actually have it as a television series as well, either in one hour or 90 minute increments. Is there a greater narrative arc over the course of those 32 chapters? What they are is a series of disjointed stories that are put together following the life of this one tugboat. So it's 32 episodes in the life of the Foundation Franklin. Correct. And also the company, which built, amongst other things, the Seaway, it built the CN Tower, and the Chadwick family, who I'm in touch with, have an incredible series of diaries and stories about their family and what they were doing at the turn of the last century and how they got themselves into the tug business. Wonderful characters. The reason I like this particular story is it's got everything. It's got man against nature. It's got incredible daring do. It's a wonderfully epic story in every way, shape, and form. There's so many elements, so many facets to it that it just makes it really sing cinematically. So when you're talking about narrative arcs, there are, again, so many levels of it within the characters and their backgrounds that it makes for fascinating reading and I hope film. Well, doesn't that information actually contradict what you're saying about it being a great story that comes out of Canada rather than a great Canadian story or a story of Canada? Not at all, because I would say that in some ways the way Canadians view Newfoundlanders is the way the English view the Irish. I'm actually 
proud to be doing this because I think it is a, a wonderful story about how what an extraordinary country Canada is and what they did in one little small part of their history. I get that, and I think it's really important, but it just so happens that the story happens to be there with those people. The fact that they're Canadian is incidental. I mean, the thing is, I'm going to find out whether Canadian broadcasters and, and Canadian distributors have an appetite for genuinely Canadian projects that have absolute Hollywood story. Again, it happens to be set in Canada. Whether they like that or not, I don't know. I'm going to find out. From Farley Mowitz, The Grey Seas Under. The Foundation Franklin was not ordered out until five o'clock that afternoon. She felt the first fruits of that eight-hour delay as she cleared Sambro Lightship. The gale, now a hurricane force, had swung into the north shortly after noon so that it was now taking Franklin on the beam instead of from astern. The cross sea, built up by the change in wind, became more vicious for every mile that Franklin made to seaward. She was soon yawing and pitching like a demented thing in the indescribable turmoil generated by two sets of thirty-foot waves running almost at right angles to each other. Her speed dropped off to eight knots, then six, then two. She seemed to shrink in stature as she drew farther from the land. The waves were in such conflict that they crushed the water of their substance beyond endurance and sent it pillaring wildly skyward. Franklin was half-drowned. Every door and hatch was dogged down as tight as human strength could make it, but still the freezing sea came in. Seas broke above her and poured down her funnels until the stokers worked in water to their knees. Water sluiced ankle-deep along the alleyways on the main deck and sent up stinking gouts of acrid steam from the hot ashes piled beside the chutes. In the stokehold, the temperature rose to 125 degrees, while in the wild world outside, the salt spray was freezing to the steel and she rolled. She had been built lively, but now she surpassed herself. Wedged in a corner of the pilot house, the skipper, Lewis, watched as she tried to lay her belly to the wind, and the knuckles of his hands grew white. Nothing that he had ever experienced in big ships had prepared him for this unholy dance, and he did not understand how Franklin could survive. Right then, so I have my selections and I've come to the office of Hungry Eyes Film and Television, Inc. It's a production company run by Jennifer Holness and her partner Sud Sutherland, with whom I served on a TIFF jury for short film some years back. And they're going to take a look at what we have and give it a think. Are Jennifer and Suds about? Uh, hi. hi. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sud, good to see you. Biking. I have, yeah, yeah. Some water? I've come with the three nominated novels, and, hell, I'm the one who cycled across town. Those of a fourth. I brought Austin Clark's trilogy of novels as my own television miniseries candidate. Well, this is exciting. Um, Farley Moe, I'm really interested to, to read that, but I have to say that as a Jamaican-Canadian, because I was actually born in Jamaica, Austin Clark's work has always been really, really uh, personal and interesting to me, and I have not... Um, read the trilogy in quite a while and so it'll be nice to reread it with the 
the eye of thinking about it as a potential miniseries. Mm-hmm. But we can't bias this whole thing. No. I mean, we will approach it all but I, I with the yeah. utmost openness towards what the agenda is on this, you know? like I, I mean, look at looking it. at Ellen in Pieces, I heard about the novel, yeah, but I'm, we haven't read it yet. And uh, this book of poetry just came from a film that dealt with poetry of Iran. Very, very inspiring. So the poetry book is inspiring, too. So we thank you, and we look forward to the whole process. Great. I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Next saved message. Yeah, Diane, sorry about the intemperate message, but, uh, uh, but, but seriously, what the actual fuck is going on? This is three screenwriters later, and I get this bizarre film treatment that has almost no resemblance to the story in my book. Andrea's draft somehow mistook the island of Malta for Malton, Ontario. And what's with the title? That's not my title. What the hell is my publisher going to do with all the goddamn cover stickers saying it's going to be a major motion picture? I wish the fuck someone would return my calls. What's a sizzle reel? Call me, would you? To erase this message, press 7. To reply to it, message erased. Next saved message. That's it for 3 for TV and this edition of 128 Sterling. Ed Rich, the author of Rare Birds and, most recently, of Today I Learned It Was You, was our novelist in distress, Janet Green the reader, and Charles Spiran did the musical bits. Marina Endicott's Close to Hugh is available in Anchor Paperback. Caroline Addison's Ellen in Pieces is published by Patrick Crean Books, Anna Faraz Ravenscrag by The House of Anansi, as is Ed Rich, and Réjean Ducharme's The Daughter of Christopher Columbus by Guernica Editions. Farley Moet's The Grey Seas Under is, strangely, available in Canada only as the American paperback published by Nick Lyons Press. Austin Clark's Toronto Trilogy of Novels is in paperback with Vintage Canada and his collected stories, Choosing His Coffin, published by Dundurn Press. Hungry Eyes' most recent television production is Shoot the Messenger with Alex Kingston and will be returning, a few weeks from now, to their offices for the lowdown on the novels. No, the properties we brought. Next time around, how many people does a novelist actually have to know? My conversation with author Christy Ann Conlin in and about the Annapolis Valley. This podcast was produced for the House of Anansi Press with the assistance of the Canada Council for the Arts. I'm Noah Richler. We'll chat again soon.